He is every one of those things. And yet, if we are not careful, we will do three things that the Word of God tells us we must not do. If we're not careful, we will grieve the Spirit. We will quench the Spirit, or we will resist the Spirit. It would be tragic to be in a worship service like this, to be in a service where the name of Christ has been lifted up and exalted, and to find ourselves in any way grieving or quenching or resisting the Spirit of God. But I can tell you that there have been moments in worship services when I have done those things. I have grieved the Spirit of God by not repenting of something that I should have. I have quenched the Spirit of God by wanting to do something in my own way. I have resisted the Spirit of God when He's told me to come to the altar and to pray or when He's convicted me of something and I've said, no, I don't want you to talk to me about that. Now, I've been honest enough to admit to 2,000 people this morning that I've done that. How about you? Have you ever grieved God in a worship service? you ever resisted God in a worship service? Have you ever done something that quenched what God might have wanted to do because you did something intentionally distracting someone that you didn't know it, but God was trying to get their attention? You see, we need to be careful about how we play church and what we do when we come to church because I believe there's hope. The question of the message today is, is there any hope? I believe there is. I've been in New York City. I've been in San Francisco. I've been in Washington, D.C., and uh, this week I will be in Los Angeles. I've been in four major cities in America. Three of them, I can tell you, it looks glim. But I do believe there's hope. I'll tell you a little bit tonight at the end of House of Prayer about some things that I believe God is teaching me about what we need to do. But on uh, Wednesday afternoon, uh, Terry and I and Haley had the privilege of going into uh, the congressional prayer room, which is located in the Capitol. To your surprise, it was only put there in the 1970s. It's a stained glass window. It has a, few, has a prayer altar and just a few chairs but you can look in the Bible there. The only people that can go into that prayer room are members of Congress and invited guests. And we slipped in and spent a few minutes and <clears throat> prayed in that room. But you can look at the pages, especially in the Psalms, and see tears where those pages have been used over and over again. And you can look at the pages and see where the page has wrinkled because of teardrops. There's hope because there have been people through the years that have been in positions of power that have found their way into that room and gotten on their knees and cried out to God and asked God to do something incredible. When we left, I opened the Bible that sits in front of that altar to 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their sin. Then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. I wonder, are we burdened that God would do something? Do we believe there's any hope? I want to tell you, there's a lot of people that believe our only hope is in the election. That'd be a sad place for me to put my hope because whoever I put my hope in, they could be out in four years. You put your hope in something that's temporary, you will get temporary hope. You put your hope in something eternal, you will get eternal hope. I believe that God wants to stir, but I believe there is a resistance inside and outside the church for revival. Last Sunday night, we had over 400 people in house of prayer. I don't believe that God looks at that and takes that lightly. I believe that God is waiting and wanting and watching for a people who will stand up and cry out with one heart and with one cry and with one purpose, God, heal our land. B.T. Roberts said, preachers who never have revivals, never weary of calling attention to everything objectionable in the methods of those who do have powerful revivals. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Obadiah 1, 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. There are three things about pride that you need to know. First of all, pride will keep me from repentance. Pride will keep me from repentance. It'll keep me from confessing sin, from getting right with a brother. It will keep me from getting right with God. And when I get right with God, I want to be right with other people. Pride will keep me from repentance. Secondly, pride will lead me to defend myself. It will always lead me to defend myself, to justify myself, to say, I'm not as bad as some other people out there. Thirdly, pride will make me see others' sin as big and mine as small. Let me tell you what pride will do. Pride will make us think that we are better than the people who protested at Chick-fil-A this week. That somehow God didn't have to spill as much blood to save us as he would have to spill to save them. Ladies and gentlemen, let me relieve all doubts about who you are. You are a wretched, vile, disgusting, pitiful, pathetic sinner who needs a Savior because any other way you're going to go to hell. I don't care how good you are. I don't care if you have a perfect attendance pen. Since one week after you came out of the womb, you still are wretched and vile and need a Savior. And there's no hope for you. Religious moralism will not get you to heaven. Being better than other people doesn't get you to heaven. It's the grace of God that gets you to heaven. And unless you and I begin to look on people who disagree with us and are not like us and, and are sometimes just repulsive to us, unless we start looking on them and seeing them through the eyes of God, we will never fully understand the cross. And pride will keep us from doing that. Because there but for the grace of God goes you and me. That's hard for us to swallow. 
because we all like to think we're better than we really are. If you were so good, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. You were so sorry and bad, the only thing he could do was die to fix your problem. Pride. We are rich and in need of nothing. That's what one church said. That is the definition of the church in America today. Thinks it's rich and in need of nothing. One theologian said this, the forgetting of the true God is already itself the breaking loose of wrath against those who have forgotten him. Now, in the last message, we talked about Ahaz, who was uh, Hezekiah's father, a wicked and perverse king, a wretched man who had offered his own sons for sacrifice, who had built false idols in the land of Israel among the covenant people of God, had turned the, the people into wretched, rebellious idolatry. Listen to me very carefully. You've heard me say this before. I want it etched in your mind. We are lacking leadership in this country, and the reason we are is because one of the signs, one of the signs of the judgment of God on America today is a lack of leadership. Name the politician that comes to mind when you think godly leader. Be a stretch. Locally, in our city, in our county, in our state. Oh, we got people that use God and country to get votes. I'm talking about godly people who say, I don't care if you elect me or not. This is what I believe. This is what I stand for. I'm unapologetic about it. Godly leadership. We're getting the leadership we deserve. One, because we don't pray for those in authority. And two, because God's using it to get our attention to cry out to him, Lord, there's got to be something better than this. Than just playing at leadership. We have the lowest level of leadership that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Top to bottom. There's a fear and it's, everybody's always running for election. Every speech is calculated to run for election. I just want one person, one time, to stand up at the Republican or the Democratic convention. I really don't care. And say, this country stinks and it's going to hell because we have tried to make everybody happy and we've forgotten the Ten Commandments posted on the wall behind the Supreme Court. And with God as my witness, if you elect me, we're going back to that. You'll never hear it. Why? Because it, it, too many lobbyists and extremist groups have too much money and too much skin in the game to make that happen. That's the kind of leader Ahab was. was. He, he appealed to the flesh of the people. He appealed to the desires of the people. And leadership is a key to revival. Listen, two things. God is looking for holy people, not a power group. We got Christians that think we need to lobby Congress. I'll tell you, if we spend as much money and time praying for Congress as we did lobbying them, we'd get a lot more done. I'm going to tell you tonight about a group of people that I met that their level of commitment to Christ is far beyond anything I've ever seen in my life, ever seen in my life. God needs a holy people. Secondly, God is looking for a set-apart people, not a people trying to set themselves up. 
not trying to position and politic their way into leadership. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. We're going to be in this passage, and we're going to look at a lot of Scripture this morning. 2 Chronicles 28, 24. Going back a little bit to where we were last Sunday. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces and he closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. So Ahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem. They did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And now there are eight words that turn the tide. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. That was the best news that the people of Israel had ever heard, although they didn't know it at the time. One person has said the sign of revival and a key principle of revival, James Burns said it, is the emergence of the prophet. Look at these words from Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 3. The ox knows who's boss. The mule knows the hand that feeds him, but not Israel. And you could insert there America. My people don't know up from down, shame, misguided, God drop out, staggering under their guilt baggage. My people have walked out on me. Their God turned their backs on the Holy One of Israel, walked off and never looked back. Why bother even trying to do anything with you when you just keep to your bull-headed ways? Let me ask you just a question. Just draw that prayer circle around yourself for just a moment and ask yourself the question, why should God bother with you anymore when you keep to your bullheaded ways? Anybody here stubborn when it comes to God, resisting, quenching, fighting against what God's Spirit is trying to say to you that you need to do, holding on grabbing the back of the seat in front of you during the invitation, longing to get out, hoping that God would leave you alone. God asks the question, why should I even bother with you, do anything with you when you just keep your bullheaded ways? Ahaz was a man who had prophets around him. Now think about this. Here's a king who has Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah all at the same time during his reign, and he pays no attention to them. You know why? This is why. See if this rings a bell with the 21st century. Ah, uh, that's so old-fashioned. That's so out of date. I mean, we're more enlightened now than they were in those days. That's an old story for old people that just want a little to be pacified on their way to wherever they're going when they die. Well, the word is not adequate and sufficient. It's out of date. It's filled with errors. Jesus is not really who he said he was. God, the days of revival are over. God doesn't really care. God's a distant deity that's moved off and just left us to our own devices. But God is always looking for a man or a woman who will be on call for him. 
he found one in a king. In 1727 in Saxony, God found a count, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf was one of the leaders of one of the greatest revivals that has ever happened in the history of the world. He was a man that God found that he could use. On Wednesday, August the 13th, 1727, 285 years ago next week, God answered the prayers of Zinzendorf. It happened during the Lord's Supper service. For those of you that never come when we do Lord's Supper because you say it's just the Lord's Supper, a revival that lasted a hundred years started in a Lord's Supper service. Be careful what you think is important. You may ought to ask God. It began on that August 13th. There was confession of sin, a laying aside of differences, and it broke out into prayer and singing. There were days and nights of unceasing prayer and group Bible studies and singing and sermons. Zinzendorf called it the religion of the heart. Our problem with the church today is we got religion of the head, but we don't have religion of the heart. God cannot stir us. God cannot break us because I already know that. I've already done that. I've been there. I was at Refresh one time. I know that. I've heard that passage before. I read that one time before. We're all caught up in our heads and we've lost our hearts. Zinzendorf said this was religion of the heart. And they started night watch prayer meetings. August 13th. 285 years ago, next week, a group of people started walking the streets and praying day and night for revival to come. And it did. Prior to the revival, the Moravian brethren had sought asylum on Zinzendorf's estate. Zinzendorf encouraged these Moravians to begin praying for revival. And with one heart and with one cry, they began to cry out for revival and awakening. And one Sunday, God ripped open the heavens and the Moravian revival began. It had such an influence that it impacted missions around the world. It was a major influence in the life of John Wesley, who would later be a catalyst for the great awakening. The heavens opened up. Now get this. 285 years ago and one day before we begin refresh, on August the 25th, 1727, 13 days after the revival began, 48 people volunteered to pray one hour a day. 48. 24 men, 24 women that there would never be an hour when the city and the people were not prayed for, that there would never be a moment in any day when there was not prayer being offered up for the city and for the people. They prayed, 24 men, 24 women. The average age was 30, and it included many children. And they prayed in a place called Watch Mountain, Their stated reason for praying was how highly needful it was, having Satan as her adversary who slumbers not day or night should be preserved 
from his wiles and be under constant and holy guardian care. By 1728, less than a year later, the intercessors were meeting 90 groups of seven or more several times a week and praying. Now, here's what's significant. This revival was known as a prayer revival. And for the next 100 years, there was never an hour when the Moravians did not have people praying for a sustained work of God. Not praying over their toenails, and not praying over the hospital list, which that's important, not praying over their personal needs, but praying for revival, not one hour for a hundred years. No wonder God showed up. It's hard for us to pray five minutes without losing things to talk about and thinking, well, I'm kind of done. Prayed for us four and no more. Got my prayer list done. I'm through. These Moravians prayed for a hundred years and still 285 years later, they are written about in books. They are talked about. Could we even get Sherwood Baptist Church to pray for 10 days? without stopping, much less a hundred years. Back to the revival under Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29. Two months after taking the throne, God began the work of one of the greatest revivals in all the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 29.1, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. It is always amazing to me some of the greatest people God uses he gets when they're young. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Notice how the writer of Chronicles puts it. He forgets that his physical father is Ahaz and he goes all the way back to his great-grandfather David. And says, this kid reminds us of his great-grandfather. He's like his father David. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and Levites and gathered them into the square to the east. Then he said to them, listen to me, O Levites, consecrate yourself now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of our fathers, and carry the uncleanliness out from the holy place. Might I note that the king called the preachers in and told them to clean up the house of God. There's a novel thing. For our fathers have been unfaithful and done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. These people knew the mess that they were in. They understood it. Ahaz had taken the country into hundreds of thousands going into captivity. They knew where they were. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart 
to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. Six things that you need to see. First of all, he did not let his past hinder him. The devil will tell you, well, you've got this past. That means that God can't use you. Well, listen, this guy was raised in a lousy home. I mean, talk about a dad that didn't pray. Talk about a dad that didn't point you in the right ways. Here's a dad that's doing everything wrong. This is a lousy, sorry dad, but he didn't let his past hinder him. He didn't make excuses about his past. He was a tenacious man. He was a man of focus. In the first year, the the first months, he began a plan to turn the nation around. He was a man of focus. Thirdly, he was a leader, not a follower. He set the tone. He talked to the priest and the Levites. He issued the orders that needed to be done. He was a leader, not a follower. Ladies and gentlemen, could we please pray that God would raise up leaders? Leaders, not people who wait to see which way the wind is blowing before they decide how they're going to vote. Not preachers who wait to see if the power groups will let him say what he wants to say and needs to say out of the word of God. Not preachers that are afraid of being fired if they preach the truth, but leaders. Listen, if you're not going to lead, get out of the way and let somebody do it. If you can't lead, be quiet, go away. But we need leaders. Here is a man who was a leader. Fourthly, he addressed the issues. He didn't stand off and and live in the, well, I'm just going to enjoy all the perks of being king. He didn't play 110 rounds of golf in three years. The first year of his reign in the first month, he opened the doors of the temple. Number five, he exercised godly wisdom. He brought in the priest who had remained faithful to God. He exercised godly wisdom. He knew where he needed to go. He knew the advice that he needed to get. He knew the people that could make the changes. And number six, he he kept his heart in tune with God. He did right in the sight of the Lord. In the opening of the doors of the temple and calling the Levites to sanctify themselves, Hezekiah puts the nation on the path to revival. Now, he had no idea of knowing that it was going to happen this quick. But he knew that they had to get back to faithfulness to the covenant. Verse 10, it is in my heart to make a covenant. You see, you cannot separate cleansing and confession from revival. And you cannot separate removal from revival. Some things have to go if there's going to be revival. There are things that need to be removed. And he called for a huge worship service. Now, if I took the time to tell you how long this worship service took, you would have wished you had gone to the restroom before you walked in. This was long. He did three things. He reinstituted the sin offering. Look at chapter 29 and verse 21. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering. And I want you to note something because this is important for three things, for the kingdom, the sanctuary, and Judah. For the kingdom, the sanctuary, and Judah. I don't know how many times I've looked at this passage and I did not see this. 
The sin offering was for cleansing and forgiveness. So by the kingdom, what that meant was he brought a sin offering for the king's house. In other words, Hezekiah said, my father has filled this kingdom with sin and I'm going to offer a sin offering and ask God to forgive the office of king for all the sins that have been committed in this place. Here's the leader who says the first place that needs to be cleaned, the first place that needs to cry out for forgiveness is the king's house. I need to ask God to forgive. Leaders first. If there's going to be revival, leaders first have to act. Leaders first have to stand. Then the sanctuary. The sanctuary was for the cleansing of the priesthood, that the priesthood needed to be cleansed, that, that while Ahaz was doing this for fear of their own lives, they had compromised, they had stayed silent, and so he brought a sin offering for the priesthood, for the, for the sanctuary, that God's house would be clean. Remember, they had shut the doors, they had built idols and images in the shadow of the temple, and he said, we've got to cleanse the house of God. From this evil. Thirdly, for Judah, the entire nation, the entire nation. Now, here's an, another important thing about this worship service. There's a sin offering, but the blood wasn't sprinkled on the altar. That's what the normal sin offering would have called for, that the blood be sprinkled on the altar. The picture here is that they literally took pails of blood and splashed it on the altar like throwing water or paint on something because they realized their sin was so great as a nation that just sprinkling a little blood symbolically wouldn't do it. They had to pour it on the altar. Can I tell you something? A one-minute trip to the altar is not going to fix what's wrong in your life. It'll start it, but it won't fix it. Some of us need to come and pour ourselves out at the altar. Not take a quick trip during one verse and go back to our seat. We need to be poured out at the altar for what we've done against God. Then there was a burnt offering, which symbolized purification and purging. And then the thank offering. Look at verse 28, the thank offering. While the whole assembly worshiped, not just some, the whole assembly worshiped. The singers also sang and trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now, listen, they're singing until the burnt offering is finished. Finished doesn't mean I'd like mine medium rare. Finished means it's cooked until it's consumed. They sang for hours. Some of us think two or three songs, that's about all I need. You're like a drug addict. You just need a little fix, and then you go back to, to you need another little fix. They sang until the offering was finished. Now at the completion of the burnt offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshiped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down in worship. Listen, churches do not know real joy until they know the joy of the Lord. Amen. 
The joy of the Lord is not something worked up. The joy of the Lord is what is prayed down. They did a survey not long ago why people don't come to church. Number one reason, pastor's sermons are dull. Number two reason, the services are lifeless. There's nothing dull and lifeless about a church full of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing dull and lifeless about a church that is in revival. Revival fills God's house with worship. Verse 31, and the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. Now look what happened and see if it reminds you of anything. Second Chronicles 29, 35. Thus, the service of the house of the Lord was established again. Now, I, I know, I know, I'm about to, I'm about to de- detour here for a minute. Everybody's canceling Sunday night services because our people travel during the week and they need to be home with their family. That's why you got Saturday. That's why you got Friday night. That's why you got Monday night. That's why you got Tuesday night. That's why you got Thursday night. That's why you got time. Can I just tell you something? The day that the body assembles, we're supposed to assemble. You know when we'll have revival in America is when pastors that just want to play golf on Sunday afternoon and preach one little sermon that they pulled off the internet, when they get right with God, they will start back teaching and feeding their people and not believing that 20 minutes on Sunday morning is enough for anybody to get fed. And they'll start it back. They established the worship in the house of God again. And by the way, we had 800 people here last Sunday night. I don't know where you were, but we had church last Sunday night. I mean, we we just about had church. And I'm just going to tell you what our young people heard at Hillsong Church in New York. So don't get mad at me. Get mad at the guy at Hillsong. He's the one that said it. The guy at Hillsong said this. I would invite you to unoccupy your seat if you're not going to give and serve and come and be active and make room for people who will. Listen, folks, we don't need any spectators at Sherwood. We don't need spectators. Worship is not a spectator sport. It's a participation event. Worship is not come and watch other people worship God. You haven't worshiped if all you're doing is watching other people worship God. You haven't worshiped if you're worried about what people think about you while you're worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. You can stay home and watch Joel Osteen on TV and do that. I hear this all the time. We'd sure have a lot more people if you wouldn't be so hard. Listen, Jesus... When he, knew, when he knew that we were getting clo- he was getting close to the cross, he tightened the screws. I believe we're getting close to judgment. I'm going to tighten the screws. If you want to go somewhere where the boards are all flapping off and the sink is shipping, go. The service of the house, how did I get off on that? The service of the house of the Lord was established again. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people. I think God's prepared something for us. I think God's prepared something for Sherwood. Because the thing came about suddenly. Remember Acts chapter 2? And suddenly there came from heaven the noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house and they, where they were sitting. I'm asking God for a suddenly moment. Amen. 
where suddenly everything in this church begins to go to a new level, where our praying goes to a higher level, our worship goes to a higher level, our teaching and our preaching, our evangelism, our missions goes to a higher level. It will happen when suddenly God says, I can trust them with it. There are four things that happen in revival. By the way, let me give you this quote by Lewis Drummond. God waits on those who will intercede until the heavens are heavy with stored up blessings. I believe the heavens are heavy with stored up blessings. And if there are other pastors and other churches that don't want it and think they can live without it, fine. I'd be glad for us to take their share they don't want. I believe in the redistribution of wealth. I think if they don't want God's wealth, I want it. If they don't want God's blessings, if they don't want God's power, I'll take it. Revival results in four things. The destruction of idols. The destruction of idols. The restoration of worship. The destruction of idols. The restoration of worship. The return to holy living. And get this one. National prosperity. Anytime there's been a revival, there's been economic and social positive results. Because God returns his favor and his blessing to his people. There's a lot more to this story, but I need to stop. But here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to stand and keep your Bible in your hand. I want to ask you to stand and keep your Bible in your hand. You would think that after Ahaz and sacrificing children and all these molten images and burnt offerings to false gods and the seeing the change that happened in a matter of months under the leadership of Hezekiah, you would think that everybody would jump on board. Everybody would say, man, that's it. That's great. Man, I am so excited. When I look back on how bad it was back in there, I am so excited for it to be like this. I mean, some of you remember the oil embargo when you sat in line for an hour waiting for gas and you could only get a limited amount of gas. And then all of a sudden, things began to turn around in our nation and prosperity came and Jimmy Carter went back to teaching Sunday school. And we thought, this is great. But then we go right back to our old ways. Look at verse 7 of chapter 30. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a horror as you see. Do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary which has been, he has consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God that his burning anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. 
So the couriers passed from city to city through the county, country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Ladies and gentlemen, when revival comes, everybody in this room is going to be in one camp. You're either going to be gracious and grateful that God, with his compassion, has sent a wave of his spirit across this land, or you're going to mock it and scorn it. There won't be any in between. Now, everybody in this room is in one of three places. You're either ready to leave because you're tired of this message, or you're resisting what I have said, what the Word of God has said, you're resisting it because you know it's going to require some major changes in your life. Or you are ready to see God work in revival. When revival comes, are you going to embrace it and find God to be gracious and compassionate, turning away His anger, giving His blessings and His goodness to your life? Or are you going to scorn it and mock it? Because really, those are your choices. This altar is open. This is a time for us to decide what we're going to do as we push toward revival, as we pray for revival, as we plead with God to send awakening to our land, to change the heart of not just politicians and, and leaders, but to change our hearts first. It first begins with us. It first begins in this house. Sherwood cannot point a finger at somebody else and say, they need to get right until we are first right. Until our house is clean and our house is pure and our house is set apart. If we will cry to God and call out to God, He will hear our prayer. He is waiting. He is longing. He is listening for the prayers of his people to say to him, God, we need you. We are desperate for you. We long for you. We hurt for you. God, come and meet us, not because we deserve it, but because we need it. As they sing, you continue to come and pray and cry out to God today, would you?